Chapter Six, Part One, of the Formation of Vegetable Moulds Through the Action of Worms, with Observations on Their Habits, by Charles Darwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, Part One, The Denudation of the Land, Continued. Denudation aided by recently ejected castings flowing down inclined grass-covered surfaces. The amount of earth which annually flows downwards. The effect of tropical rain on worm castings. The finest particles of earth washed completely away from castings. The disintegration of dried castings into pellets, and their rolling down inclined surfaces. The formation of little ledges on hillsides, in part due to the accumulation of disintegrated castings. Castings blown to leeward over level land. An attempt to estimate the amount thus blown. The degradation of ancient encampments and tumuli. The preservation of the crowns and furrows on land anciently ploughed. The formation and amount of mould over the chalk formation. We are now prepared to consider the more direct part which worms take in the denudation of the land. When reflecting on subaerial denudation, it formerly appeared to me, as it has to others, that a nearly level or very gently inclined surface, covered with turf, could suffer no loss during even a long lapse of time. It may, however, be urged that at long intervals, debacles of rain or water spouts would remove all the mould from a very gentle slope. But when examining the steep, turf-covered slopes in Glenroy, I was struck with the fact how rarely any such event could have happened since the glacial period, as it was plain from the well-preserved state of the three successive roads or lake margins. But the difficulty in believing that earth, in any appreciable quantity, can be recovered from a gently inclined surface, covered with vegetation and matted with roots, is removed through the agency of worms. For the many castings which are thrown up during rain, and those thrown up some little time before heavy rain, flow for a short distance down an inclined surface. Moreover, much of the finest levigated earth is washed completely away from the castings. During dry weather, castings often disintegrate into small round pellets, and these, from their weight, often roll down any slope. This is more especially apt to occur when they are started by the wind, and probably when started by the touch of an animal, however small. We shall also see that a strong wind blows all the castings, even on a level field, to leeward, whilst they are soft, and in a like manner the pellets when they are dry. If the wind blows in nearly the direction of an inclined surface, the flowing down of the castings is much aided. The observations on which these several statements are founded must now be given in some detail. Castings, when first ejected, are viscid and soft. During rain, at which time worms apparently prefer to eject them, they are still softer, so that I have sometimes thought that worms must swallow much water at such times. However this may be, rain, even when not very heavy, if long continued, renders recently ejected castings semi-fluid, and on level ground they then spread out into thin, circular, flat disks, exactly as would so much honey or very soft mortar with all traces of the vermiform structure lost. This latter fact was sometimes made evident when a worm had subsequently bored through a flat circular disk of this kind, 
and heaped up a fresh vermiform mast in the centre. These flat, subsided discs have been repeatedly seen by me after heavy rain, in many places on land of all kinds. On the flowing of wet castings, and the rolling of dry disintegrated castings down inclined surfaces. When castings are ejected on an inclined surface, during or shortly before heavy rain, they cannot fail to flow a little down the slope. Thus, on some steep slopes in Knoll Park, which were covered with coarse grass, and had apparently existed in this state from time immemorial, I found, October 22, 1872, after several wet days, that almost all the many castings were considerably elongated in the line of the slope, and that they now consisted of smooth, only slight conical masses. Whenever the mouths of the burrows could be found from which the earth had been ejected, there was more earth below than above them. After some heavy storms of rain, January 25, 1872, two rather steeply inclined fields near Down, which had formerly been ploughed, and were now rather sparsely clothed with poor grass, were visited, and many castings extended down the slopes for a length of five inches, which was twice or thrice the usual diameter of the castings thrown up on the level parts of these same fields. On some grassy slopes in Hallwood Park, it climbed at angles between eight degrees and eleven degrees thirty minutes with the horizon, where the surface apparently had never been disturbed by the hand of man, castings abounded in extraordinary numbers and a space sixteen inches in length transversely to the slope and six inches in the line of the slope was completely coated between the blades of grass with a uniform sheet of confluent and subsided castings here also in many places the castings had flowed down the slope and now formed smooth narrow patches of earth six seven and seven and one-half inches in length some of these consisted of two castings, one above the other, which had become so completely confluent that they could hardly be distinguished. On my lawn, clothed with very fine grass, most of the castings are black, but some are yellowish, from earth having been brought up from a greater depth than usual, and the flowing down of these yellow castings after heavy rain could be clearly seen where the slope was five degrees. And where it was less than one degree, some evidence of their flowing down could still be detected. On another occasion, after rain which was never heavy, but which lasted for eighteen hours, all the castings on this same gently inclined lawn had lost their vermiform structure, and they had flowed, so that fully two-thirds of the ejected earth lay below the mouths of the burrows. These observations led me to make others with more care. Eight castings were found on my lawn, where the grass blades are fine and close together, and three others on a field with coarse grass. The inclination of the surface at the eleven places where these castings were collected varied between four degrees thirty minutes and seventeen degrees thirty minutes, the mean of the eleven inclinations being nine degrees twenty-six minutes. The length of the castings in the direction of the slope was first measured with as much accuracy as their irregularities would permit. It was found possible to make these measurements within about one-eighth of an inch, but one of the castings was too irregular to admit of measurement. The average length in the direction of the slope of the remaining ten castings was 2.03 inches. The castings were then divided with a knife into two parts along a horizontal line passing through the mouth of the burrow, 
which was discovered by slicing off the turf, and all the ejected earth was separately collected, namely, the part above the hole and the part below. Afterwards, these two parts were weighed. In every case, there was much more earth below than above, the mean weight of that above being 103 grams, and of that below 205 grams, so that the latter was very nearly double the former. As on level ground, castings are commonly thrown up almost equally round the mouths of the burrows. This difference in weight indicates the amount of ejected earth which had flowed down the slope. But very many more observations would be requisite to arrive at any general result. For the nature of the vegetation and other accidental circumstances, such as the heaviness of the rain, the direction and force of the wind, etc., appear to be more important in determining the quantity of the earth which flows down a slope than its angle. Thus, with four castings on my lawn, included in the above eleven, where the mean slope was seven degrees nineteen minutes, the difference in the amount of earth above and below the burrows was greater than with three other castings on the same lawn where the mean slope was twelve degrees five minutes. We may, however, take the above eleven cases, which are accurate as far as they go, and calculate the weight of the ejected earth, which annually flows down a slope, having a mean inclination of nine degrees, twenty-six minutes. This was done by my son George. It has been shown that almost exactly two-thirds of the ejected earth is found below the mouth of the burrow, and one-third above it. Now, if the two-thirds which is below the hole be divided into two equal parts, the upper half of this two-thirds exactly counterbalances the one-third which is above the hole, so that as far as regards the one-third above, and the upper half of the two-thirds below, there is no flow of earth down the hillside. The earth constituting the lower half of the two-thirds is, however, displaced through distances which are different for every part of it, but which may be represented by the distance between the middle point of the lower half of the two-thirds and the hole, so that the average distance of displacement is a half of the whole length of the worm casting. Now the average length of ten out of the above eleven castings was 2.03 inches, and half of this we may take as being one inch. It may therefore be concluded that one-third of the whole earth brought to the surface was in these cases carried down the slope through one inch. It was shown in the third chapter that on Leith Hill Common, dry earth weighing at least 7.453 pounds was brought up by worms to the surface on a square yard in the course of a year. If a square yard be drawn on a hillside with two of its sides horizontal, then it is clear that only one thirty-sixth part of the earth brought up on that square yard would be near enough to its lower side to cross it, supposing the displacement of the earth to be through one inch. But it appears that only one-third of the earth brought up can be considered to flow downwards. Hence, one-third of one thirty-sixth, or one one-hundred-and-eighth, of seven-point-four-five-three pounds, will cross the lower side of our square yard in a year. Now, one one-hundred-and-eighth of seven-point-four-five-three pounds is one-point-one ounces. Therefore, one-point-one ounces of dry earth will annually cross each linear yard running horizontally along a slope having the above inclination, or nearly seven pounds will annually cross a horizontal line one hundred yards in length 
on the hillside having this inclination. A more accurate, though still very rough, calculation can be made of the bulk of earth, which in its natural damp state annually flows down the same slope over a yard line drawn horizontally across it. From the several cases given in the third chapter, it is known that the castings annually brought to the surface on a square yard, if uniformly spread out, would form a layer point two of an inch in thickness. It therefore follows, by a calculation similar to the one already given, that one-third of point two times thirty-six, or two-point-four cubic inches of damp earth, will annually cross a horizontal line one yard in length on a hillside, with the above inclination. This bulk of damp castings was found to weigh 1.85 ounces. Therefore, 11.56 pounds of damp earth, instead of 7 pounds of dry earth, as by the former calculation, would annually cross a line 100 yards in length on our inclined surface. In these calculations, it has been assumed that the castings flow a short distance downwards during the whole year, but this occurs only with those ejected during or shortly before rain, so that the above results are thus far exaggerated. On the other hand, during rain much of the finest earth is washed to a considerable distance from the castings, even where the slope is an extremely gentle one, and is thus wholly lost as far as the above calculations are concerned. Castings ejected during dry weather, and which have set hard, lose, in the same manner, a considerable quantity of fine earth. Dried castings, moreover, are apt to disintegrate into little pellets, which often roll or are blown down any inclined surface. Therefore, the above result, namely, that 2.4 cubic inches of earth, weighing 1.85 ounces, whilst damp, annually crosses a yard line of the specified kind, is probably not much, if at all exaggerated. This amount is small, but we should bear in mind how many branching valleys intersect most countries, the whole length of which must be very great, and that earth is steadily travelling down both turf-covered sides of each valley. For every one hundred yards in length in a valley, with sides sloping as in the foregoing cases, four hundred and eighty cubic inches of damp earth, weighing about twenty-three pounds, will annually reach the bottom. Here, a thick bed of alluvium will accumulate, ready to be washed away in the course of centuries, as the stream in the middle meanders from side to side. If it could be shown that worms generally excavate their burrows at right angles to an inclined surface, and this would be their shortest course for bringing up earth from beneath, then, as the old burrows collapsed from the weight of the superincumbent soil, the collapsing would inevitably cause the whole bed of vegetable mould to sink or slide slowly down the inclined surface. But to ascertain the direction of many burrows was found too difficult and troublesome. A straight piece of wire was, however, pushed into twenty-five burrows on several sloping fields, and in eight cases the burrows were nearly at right angles to the slope, whilst in the remaining cases they were indifferently directed at various angles, either upwards or downwards, with respect to the slope. In countries where rain is very heavy, as in the tropics, the castings appear, as might have been expected, to be washed down in a greater degree than in England. Mr. Scott informs me that near Calcutta the tall columnar castings, previously described, the diameter of which is usually between one and one and one-half inches, subside 
on a level surface after heavy rain into almost circular thin flat discs between three and four and sometimes five inches in diameter three fresh castings which had been ejected in the botanic gardens quote, on a slightly inclined grass-covered artificial bank of loamy clay end quote, were carefully measured and had a mean height of two point one seven and a mean diameter of one point four three inches these after heavy rain formed elongated patches of earth with a mean length in the direction of the slope of five point eight three inches as the earth had spread very little up the slope a large part judging from the original diameter of these castings must have flowed bodily downwards about four inches moreover some of the finest earth of which they were composed must have been washed completely away to a still greater distance in drier sites near calcutta a species of worm ejects its castings not in vermiform masses but in little pellets of varying sizes these are very numerous in some places and mr scott says that they quote, are washed away by every shower end quote. i was led to believe that a considerable quantity of fine earth is washed quite away from castings during rain from the surfaces of old ones being often studded with coarse particles accordingly a little fine precipitated chalk moistened with saliva or gum water so as to be slightly viscid and of the same consistency as a fresh casting was placed on the summits of several castings and gently mixed with them these castings were then watered through a very fine rose the drops from which were closer together than those of rain but not nearly so large as those in a thunderstorm nor did they strike the ground with nearly so much force as drops during heavy rain a casting thus treated subsided with surprising slowness owing as i suppose to its viscidity it did not flow bodily down the grass-covered surface of a lawn which was here inclined at an angle of sixteen degrees twenty minutes nevertheless many particles of the chalk were found three inches below the casting the experiment was repeated on three other castings on different parts of the lawn which sloped at two degrees thirty minutes three degrees and six degrees and particles of chalk could be seen between four and five inches below the casting and after the surface had become dry particles were found in two cases at a distance of five and six inches several other castings with precipitated chalk placed on their summits were left to the natural action of the rain in one case after rain which was not heavy the casting was longitudinally streaked with white in two other cases the surface of the ground was rendered somewhat white for a distance of one inch from the casting and some soil collected at a distance of two and one half inches where the slope was seven degrees effervesced slightly when placed in acid after one or two weeks the chalk was wholly or almost wholly washed away from all the castings on which it had been placed and these had recovered their natural colour it may be here remarked that after very heavy rain shallow pools may be seen on level or nearly level fields where the soil is not very porous and the water in them is often slightly muddy when such little pools have dried the leaves and blades of grass at their bottoms are generally coated with a thin layer of mud this mud i believe is derived in large part from recently ejected castings dr king informs me that the majority of the before described gigantic castings which he found on a fully exposed bare gravelly knoll 
on the Nilgiri Mountains in India had been more or less weathered by the previous northeast monsoon, and most of them presented a subsided appearance. The worms here eject their castings only during the rainy season, and at the time of Dr. King's visit no rain had fallen for 110 days. He carefully examined the ground between the place where these huge castings lay and a little watercourse at the base of the knoll, and nowhere was there any accumulation of fine earth, such as would necessarily have been left by the disintegration of the castings, if they had not been wholly removed. He, therefore, has no hesitation in asserting that the whole of these huge castings are annually washed during the two monsoons, when about one hundred inches of rainfall, into the little watercourse, and thence into the plains lying below at a depth of three thousand or four thousand feet. Castings ejected before or during dry weather become hard, sometimes surprisingly hard, from the particles of earth having been cemented together by the intestinal secretions. Frost seems to be less effective in their disintegration than might have been expected. Nevertheless, they readily disintegrate into small particles after being alternately moistened with rain and again dried. Those which have flowed during rain down a slope disintegrate in the same manner. Such pellets often roll a little down any sloping surface, their descent being sometimes much aided by the wind. The whole bottom of a broad dry ditch in my grounds, where there were very few fresh castings, was completely covered with these pellets, or disintegrated castings, which had rolled down the steep sides, inclined at an angle of twenty-seven degrees. Near Nice, in places where the great cylindrical castings previously described abound, the soil consists a very fine arenaceo-calcareous loam. And Dr. King informs me that these castings are extremely liable to crumble during dry weather into small fragments, which are soon acted on by rain, and then sink down so as to be no longer distinguishable from the surrounding soil. He sent me a mass of such disintegrated castings, collected on the top of a bank, where none could have rolled down from above. They must have been ejected within the previous five or six months, but they now consisted of more or less rounded fragments of all size, from three-quarters of an inch in diameter to minute grains and mere dust. Dr. King witnessed the crumbling process whilst drawing some perfect castings, which he afterwards sent to me. Mr. Scott also remarks on the crumbling of the castings near Calcutta and on the mountains of Sikkim during the hot and dry season. When the castings near Nice had been ejected on an inclined surface, the disintegrated fragments rolled downwards without losing their distinctive shape, and in some places could, quote, be collected in basketfuls, end quote. Dr. King observed a striking instance of this fact on the Corniche Road, where a drain about two and one-half feet wide and nine inches deep had been made to catch the surface drainage from the adjoining hillside. The bottom of this drain was covered for a distance of several hundred yards, to a depth of one and one-half to three inches, by a layer of broken castings, still retaining their characteristic shape. Nearly all these innumerable fragments had rolled down from above, for extremely few castings had been ejected in the drain itself. The hillside was steep, but varied much in inclination, which Dr. King estimated at from thirty degrees to sixty degrees with the horizon. He climbed up the slope, and, quote, found every here and there 
little embankments formed by fragments of the castings that have been arrested in their downward progress by irregularities of the surface by stones twigs etc one little group of plants of anemone hortensis had acted in this manner and quite a small bank of soil had collected around it much of this soil had crumbled down but a great deal of it still retained the form of castings dr king dug up this plant and was struck with the thickness of the soil which must have recently accumulated over the crown of the rhizoma as shown by the length of bleached petioles in comparison with those of other plants of the same kind where there had been no such accumulation the earth thus accumulated had no doubt been secured as i have everywhere seen by the smaller roots of the plants after describing this and other analogous cases dr king concludes quote, i can have no doubt that worms greatly help in the process of denudation End quote. ledges of earth on steep hillsides little horizontal ledges one above another have been observed on steep grassy slopes in many parts of the world their formation has been attributed to animals traveling repeatedly along the slope in the same horizontal lines while grazing and that they do thus move and use ledges is certain but professor henslow a most careful observer told sir j hooker that he was convinced that this was not the sole cause of their formation sir j hooker saw such ledges on the himalayan and atlas ranges where there were no domesticated animals and not many wild ones but these latter would it is probable use the ledges at night when grazing like our domesticated animal a friend observed for me the ledges on the alps of switzerland and states that they ran at three or four feet one above the other and were about a foot in breadth they had been deeply pitted by the feet of grazing cows similar ledges were observed by the same friend on our chalk downs and on an old talus of chalk fragments thrown out of a quarry which had become clothed with turf my son francis examined a chalk escarpment near Lou, and here on a part which was very steep sloping at forty degrees with the horizon about thirty flat ledges extended horizontally for more than one hundred yards at an average distance of about twenty inches one beneath the other they were from nine to ten inches in breadth when viewed from a distance they presented a striking appearance owing to their parallelism but when examined closely they were seen to be somewhat sinuous and one often ran into another giving the appearance of the lodge having forked into two they are formed of light-coloured earth which on the outside where thickest was in one case nine inches and in another case between six and seven inches in thickness above the ledges the thickness of the earth over the chalk was in the former case four and in the latter only three inches the grass grew more vigorously on the outer edges of the ledges than on any other part of the slope and here formed a tufted fringe their middle part was bare but whether this was caused by the trampling of sheep which sometimes frequent the ledges my son could not ascertain nor could he feel sure how much of the earth on the middle and bare parts consisted of disintegrated worm castings which had rolled down from above but he felt convinced that some had thus originated and it was manifest that the ledges with their grass fringed edges would arrest any small object rolling down from above at one end or side of the bank bearing these ledges the surface consisted in parts of bare chalk and here the ledges were very irregular 
at the other end of the bank the slope suddenly became less steep and here the ledges ceased rather abruptly but little embankments only a foot or two in length were still present the slope became steeper lower down the hill and the regular ledges then reappeared another of my sons observed on the inland side of beachy head where the surface sloped at about twenty-five degrees many short little embankments like those just mentioned they extended horizontally and were from a few inches to two or three feet in length they supported tufts of grass growing vigorously the average thickness of the mould of which they were formed taken from nine measurements was four point five inches while that of the mould above and beneath them was on an average only three point two inches and on each side on the same level three point one inches on the upper parts of the slope these embankments showed no signs of having been trampled on by sheep but in the lower parts such signs were fairly plain no long continuous ledges had here been formed if the little embankments above the corniche road which dr king saw in the act of formation by the accumulation of disintegrated and rolled worm castings were to become confluent along horizontal lines ledges would be formed each embankment would tend to extend laterally by the lateral extension of the arrested castings and animals grazing on a steep slope would almost certainly make use of every prominence at nearly the same level and would indent the turf between them and such intermediate indentations would again arrest the castings an irregular ledge when once formed would also tend to become more regular and horizontal by some of the castings rolling laterally from the higher to the lower parts which would thus be raised any projection beneath a ledge would not afterwards receive disintegrated matter from above and would tend to be obliterated by rain and other atmospheric agencies there is some analogy between the formation as here supposed of these ledges and that of the ripples of wind-drifted sand as described by lyle footnote elements of geology 1865 page 20 end of footnote the steep grass-covered sides of a mountainous valley in westmoreland called grisdale was marked in many places with innumerable lines of miniature cliffs with almost horizontal little ledges at their bases their formation was in no way connected with the action of worms for casting could not anywhere be seen and their absence as an inexplicable fact although the turf lay in many places over a considerable thickness of boulder clay and moraine rubbish nor as far as i could judge was the formation of these little cliffs at all closely connected with the trampling of cows or sheep it appeared as if the whole superficial somewhat argillaceous earth while partially held together by the roots of the grasses had slided a little way down the mountain sides and in thus sliding had yielded and cracked in horizontal lines transversely to the slope end of chapter six part one